6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. Let's go on, verse 7. And of the angels he saith, Who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers as a flame of fire. That's quoted literally from Psalm 104, fourth verse. And uh, where did where did ministers as a flame of fire? Well, Sodom and Gomorrah is one example, right? The fire over Egypt in the, in the Passover episodes. Continuing. But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. There's again a reference to a kingdom. Whose kingdom? The son's kingdom. We're going to be more and more sensitive. This is quoted from Psalm 45. And they draw a lot from that. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Statement of his divinity. The father is saying to the son, unto thy throne, O God. He's calling the son God, he's giving, and he has his own throne. This is a statement about the Son's deity, the deity of Jesus Christ. And for how long? For a thousand years? No. Forever and ever. There's a specific thousand year period that's another subject. So how long is the throne? Forever and ever. His reign is eternal. We know that from Isaiah 6, verse 7, 9, chapter 9, verse 7. His throne is forever, Daniel 7. The promise to Mary. Gabriel tells Mary that her child is going to rule forever and ever. Thy kingdom. That is going to be a big subject as we unfold this interesting epistle. And we're going to find the roots of that in the Davidic covenant. And my that's, of course, from Amos 9, 11, when they had the big debate in Acts 15 about what does a Gentile have to do to become a Christian and so forth. James presides and he resolves the dispute by quoting from Amos 9 that first he'll call out a people for the Gentiles and then shall the tabernacle of David be reestablished. And he quotes Amos 9 in, in, uh, in Acts 15 and we'll be dealing with that again later. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity before God. Even thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. That's continuing the quote from Psalm 45. There are two sides to his reign. Let's realize it's a two-edged sword, so to speak. He loved righteousness and he hates iniquity. You can't forget either one of those. He loves righteousness and hates wickedness. We need, you and I need to hate sin more than we do. We get it mixed up. We love sin and hate the sinner. We don't have to admit it, but we do. It should be the other way around. We love the sinner, as he did, but we hate sin. We understand that God hates sin. And God sends the comforter to help us to hate sin. That's John 14 and elsewhere. So all the way through, we have messianic overtones. He announces his deity. He presents his position, his throne, his kingship, reference to the scepter, excellency or impartially of his reign, 
the perfection of his character on earth, the place of his subjection, the reward in terms of being anointed, and his preeminence. These are all emerging from just a few verses. Continue verse 10. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. The foundation of the earth. Wow. Most of us don't realize what the earth is. Most of us think of the earth as part of the creation. And indeed it is. And yet, some surprising discoveries in Genesis. You see, verses by these verses 10 through 12, next few verses, are all taken from Psalm 102. The foundations of the earth are, they precede the sun and the moon and the rest of the universe. You've got to be kidding. I thought the nebular hypothesis, you know, that the earth came out of the sun. No, that's a nonsense that was fabricated by an occultist by the name of Swedenborg who got Laplace to endorse it, not checking the math. It's now provably nonsense, mathematically, and yet it's commonly taught today in astronomy classes in universities. That's utter nonsense. The foundation of the earth occurs, by the way, ten times in the scripture. I find that fascinating. I don't know if it has anything to do with the fact we now know there's ten dimensions to the physical universe, but that's a whole other thing. Let's go elsewhere. The earth was already present by the, at the second verse of Genesis 1. First verse, yeah. God created, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, period. Carriage turn, new paragraph. The earth became without form and void. The word became is a transitive verb requiring an object. And it, uh, anyway, it wasn't that way originally. What happened? We don't know. All kinds of weird conjectures. We do know that the sun and the stars appear in the fourth day. The earth is around in the first day, covered with water, apparently from a previous flood, a judgment of some kind. Noah's flood was the second flood, not the first one. Whoa, a lot of stuff here. Well, those, you check this out. I'm not here to teach you that. I'm here to get you to discover for yourself what you think could happen. The next verse. They shall perish, but thou remainest. They shall wax old as doth a garment. If you're in physics, you recognize that immediately. They shall perish. That's an expression of the second law of thermodynamics, which leads to what they call the ultimate heat death of the universe, because everything is winding down to a uniform temperature. All work is done by temperature differences. And every time there's a temperature difference comes some work, some of it's lost to the ambient. So eventually the entire universe will become uniform temperature. No more work can be done. They call that the heat death. Well known in thermodynamics. Well known in cosmology. The great discovery of 20th century science is that the universe is not infinite, it's finite. It had a beginning and it'll have an end. And that's uh, in 1 Timothy 6, Proverbs 8, and in any respectable uh, journal on the subject. Going on. And as a vesture, this is continuing that same quote for Psalm 102, as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed, and thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. As a vesture thou shalt fold them up. I think that's interesting. That in order for space to be folded up, there must be an additional dimension for it to fold into, if you will. And we can go into all of that. All of that is still from Psalm 102. The boundaries of reality, if we take man as sort of the center here and look bigger, sizes increases to the right in my little diagram on the screen. And over to the right, as we look bigger and bigger and bigger, we discover you can't get big forever because there's a finite limit. That's what we mean by a finite universe. 
That was a big shock to astronomy, but it is the findings of 20th century science in astronomy, astrophysics, what have you. Going the other way is even more shocking because most of us can imagine that you can never get beyond smallness. Whatever is small, you can divide in half. That's not true. See, on the large size, the macrocosm, we have that. On the smaller size, we, have in, we discover that everything we have, length, mass, time, energy, all are made up of indivisible units. They're called quanta. That's why they call the field quantum physics. And subatomic particles can't be divided. If you divide them, they lose locality. They're suddenly everywhere at one time. What? Weird stuff. And the smallness has a limit. So what we discover is that our physical universe is digital. The smallness, there are units that you can't get smaller than. It's a digital boundary. On the big side, even the red shift you discover now uh, is in steps. It's digitized. So we're in a digital simulation. And we get into this in our epistemological stuff, but just to remind you, the Scientific American ran an article in 2005, in, June, in the June issue, pointing out reasons why scientists beginning to suspect that our physical universe is but a shadow of a larger reality, to which I say, no kidding, Dick Tracy. That's what the Bible has said all along. So I invite you to chase that down. But I find that very interesting because in 1 John 3, 2, we have a physics term that I embrace with great excitement. John says to his listeners, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. What does that mean? Clearly, after his resurrection, Jesus enjoyed a very strange body. It was physical. So handle me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see me have. And yet, even though he's physical, he could enter and leave closed rooms without passing through the floor, ceiling, windows, doors, whatever. He, he was able to uh, transcend our three-dimensional universe. That means he had mathematicians to say he must have had at least 11 dimensions. I'm not going to get down that path. But whatever it is, we apparently enjoy the same thing because we're not going to see a representation of him. We'll see him as he is. If I see a photograph of you, I see a two-dimensional representation of a three-dimensional object. We're not going to see a, a three-dimensional representation of a four-dimensional object. We're going to see whatever. We'll have the same dimensionality he does. That's a profound statement in, in John. So I'll leave that with you. We move on, verse 13. But to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Well, that's pretty interesting for a lot of reasons. Because, first of all, he, he obviously never said that to the angels, but of course he did say it to his son. But what fascinates me, he said that in Psalm 110. Again, the writer is always drawing upon the Old Testament to make his point. Because he's a Jew talking to Jews. Not as an apostle, as simply one of them. But there's something else about Psalm 110 I can't get by because Jesus, when confronted with his antagonists, asked them a question. And by the way, Psalm 110 is quoted 25 times in the New Testament. It's quoted 10 times in this epistle alone. So you want to be aware of this. But what's interesting, this was the very verse that Jesus used to confound his attackers. And uh, in Psalm 110, the way it reads... The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And Jesus asked the, the lawyers, 
Who's the, who, who, the Messiah? Whose son is he? Well, he's the son of David. They all knew that answer. So then how can David call him my Lord? He's the son of David. How can he call him? How could he call his son my Lord? And they had no answer. In fact, the, the, the Matthew 20, text in Matthew 22, from that day on, they didn't ask him any more questions. What you and I miss, unless we've done our homework, is that Christ's entire argument hung on a yod. Because the yod, ahead of yod heh vav heh, the name of God, is, um, makes it possessive. And uh, so the, the yod, excuse me, the yod following, uh, the, uh, the Lord said to my Lord, um, the yod is the last letter of, remember, it goes from right to left, so, it, yeah, okay, it's the last letter. And uh, that reminds me of another verse. Jesus said, Think not that I come to destroy the law of the prophets. I come not to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one yacht or one tittle shall not pass from the law until all be fulfilled. Now a yacht, a yacht is a yacht or tittle. Those are Hebraisms for what you and I would call a dotting of an I or crossing a T. Let's move on. We have just covered 14, uh, from 4 to 4, 10 verses. And in this... The son's position was unique, quoting from Psalm 2.7. He was the head of the Davidic covenant from 2 Samuel 7.14. The angels worshipped the son in Psalm 97. The angels served the son in Psalm 104. The son rules the kingdom in Psalm 45. The son is the creator in Psalm 102. And he is enthroned at the right hand of God in Psalm 110. All these that you're dealing here with quotes from, from the Old Testament. Every one of them. And the last verse in Psalm 14, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be what? The heirs of salvation. The heirs of salvation. What is the heirs of salvation? See, a future salvation is in view. Who shall be heirs? This can't be referring to a past tense. It's something future, right? Okay. Justification is past tense. Justification with respect to everlasting life is not applicable to this verse because it's a past event. John 3.18, John 5.24, Ephesians 2, 5 and 8, all kinds of places that nail that down. Those justified already possess everlasting life. It's not a gift. I mean, excuse me, it is a gift. It's not a conditional inheritance. Salvation is not a conditional inheritance. It's past tense. This is a future tense term. Those who are about to inherit are Christians. They're already Christians, but they're about to inherit if they don't blow it. And that's what the warnings are all about. I want to remind you of the paradigm of salvation. Earl Rockemeyer always makes these. He says, I'm saved, I'm being saved, and I will be saved. That's his way of dramatizing a point of what I call the paradigm. You know, in, in school we had paradigms of verbs, past tense, present tense, future tense. You've all had that. Well, justification is past tense. It's a gift of God, of everlasting life, received by faith alone in Christ alone. Not Christ plus works. No, Christ alone. If you trust Christ, you're justified. That stamps your passport for heaven. You've got entry. doesn't mean you own it. You can enter a hotel. doesn't mean you inherited it. The next step is present tense, sanctification. That's a work in progress. That involves faith and the obedience and works of the believer. Sanctification, continuing. Every one of us in this room, me included, 
is a work in progress. It's going on. The final result is called glorification. That's the future tense. That's the result of all the previous things going on. All believers, according to Romans 8, will be, will be ultimately glorified. That is resurrected and given a body like Christ. But some will have more glory than others, more reward than others. And that's what Hebrews is all about, the book of Hebrews. Past tense, separation from the penalty of sin. Past tense. Past, your past sins, you're separated from that penalty. Present tense, you're separated from the power of sin. You now have the Holy Spirit that will give you the power to overcome sin. It, need, it no longer need reign in your life. Future tense, separation from the presence of sin. That doesn't happen until we're all glorified with the Father. The, the, the present tense we call justification. The, excuse me, the past tense we call justification. The present tense we call sanctification. And the future tense we call glorification. Understand those three differences and the whole book will unfold before you. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Those are the three tenses of a word that we use sloppily when we say salvation, which is ambiguous. So we encourage our students in the institute to use the precise term that relates to the topic. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Justification is for us. Sanctification is in us. Justification declares us righteous. We haven't changed, but we were declared righteous by the authority of Christ. Sanctification makes the sinner righteous. Justification removes the guilt and penalty of sin. Sanctification removes the growth and power of sin. That's the differences, the very fundamental differences. Epistle to Hebrews is all about sanctification. It takes justification for granted. Soteriological salvation is what we're talking about. That is separation from or deliverance from hell. That's never alluded to in the epistle of Hebrews. It never comes up. It's taken for granted. The salvation that's talked about in the epistle of Hebrews is eschatological. It's a future tense. It's the future aspect of salvation attached to Christ's coming kingdom and the inheritance that's afforded the believer that is in view. And in order to attain this future, faith and obedience are required. Faith and works, if you will. There are three principal views I want to remind you of. We went through this last time, but it needs to be in front of us. There's the Calvinistic view, the Arminian view, and a third view, the, what I'll call the partaker view. Calvinism is usually represented by five precepts. I won't go through them all. They're usually summarized by the acronym TULIP, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. And what Calvinism, I'm being unfair here, I just want to be brief, because there's different versions of it. Basically, all true believers will, preserve, will persevere to the end. Well, how do you know if you're a true believer? Well, you have to wait to the end to find out. Okay? Perseverance is the final test of reality. That's why some writers call this experimental predestinarian. You're predestined, but you won't find out until you get to the end to see if you are predestined. Okay? And that effectively denies any assurance of salvation. Ironically enough, proof is always the future. The Arminian has a different view, sort of. They believe the earth's justification can be lost. Believers are in danger of losing their salvation as a result of sinful behavior. Thus, the believer's eternal security rests in Christ's work and the individual's decision to continue. If I can screw it up, I know I will. That's not eternal life. That's conditional, with a lot of fine print in the contract. And works play a key role in retaining salvation to the Arminian. Both these views, while the war has gone on for centuries between these two opposing camps, they're surprisingly similar. 
Both views acknowledge that Christ's completed work is essential, but both, and both acknowledge the importance of works in the life of the believer in some way. But these, even though they're in direct opposition, they're very, both surprisingly close to the Catholic view of salvation by works. There is, so we have a basic division. The whole theological world is divided into two groups. Calvinism, eternal security, perseverance, and what some people call experimental predestinarians. Arminium are only those that persevere to the undersaved. Okay. That's where the war has been fought, and they've both been arguing, they're both right in what they assert, and they're both wrong in what they deny. They both are displaced, in effect, by a biblical view, which introduces the concept of overcomers. They speak of eternal, they know they're eternal secu eternally secure from all the obvious passages, but they make a distinction between entering heaven and inheriting. Big difference. There's a wide variety of rewards, and that's the, that's the view we're going to take. Hebrews 1, God has spoken. The first two chapters, the revelation is complete and final through the birth of His Son. The, de of the, the deity of the Son is emphasized. There are seven messianic quotations that underscore these statements. His heirship and inheritance you find emphasized three times in just 14 verses. The Son is the heir of all things, superior to the angels by means of inheritance. That's verse 4. Christ's supremacy in the present and is in, also in the eschatological future is emphasized in these 14 verses. This first We're just in chapter 1 of the book of Hebrews. The Christology. The Christology of chapter 1 is more excellent nature, verses 4 and 5. He's worshipped by the angels, 6. Made the angels, verse 7. He's sitting on the throne, in verse 8 and 9. Anointed above them, in verse 9. And he himself is immutable and the eternal creator. Okay. And he has a higher place of honor. This is really the summary of chapter 1. Next time we take chapter 2, including the first of the five warnings. And... Uh, in the chapter 2, in addition to dealing with the first of those warnings, chapter 2 is also going to anticipate two objections to the idea that the Son is above angels. If Christ is above the angels, yet became a man which is lower than the angels, how can he still be higher than the angels while in the form of a man? That's a reasonable question, isn't it? In fact, we got it in a Q&A time here, didn't we? The second objection is that Christ died. Angels don't die. Christ did. How can he be higher than the angels if he died? How can that make him better than the immortal angels? These two objections the writer will anticipate and, and deal with in chapter 2. He's also going to talk about, introduce, we're going to also take the opportunity next time to get at more clearly this strange phrase we all use when we quote the Lord's Prayer, as we, what we call the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come. What does that mean? What are we praying for when we say thy kingdom come? And the answer may shock you. And if, if that's true, what are the keys to the kingdom? Every weird group on the planet earth has their theory on what the keys to the kingdom are. There are the Catholics have their view. They are at Caesarea Philippi where it comes up. It's not the only place it comes up. And all kinds of groups somehow jump on that phrase that they have the keys to the kingdom. What on earth is involved there? You, will not, you can't possibly answer until you understand what kingdom you're talking about. 
And the answer is in the Old Testament. And we'll find that next time. And we'll also define it derives from the Davidic covenant. So this is a piece of background that we're going to take advantage of uh, because the, the writer to the Hebrews takes it, presumes it among his readers. But we've got to plug that hole because most of us have not been taught anything about the coming kingdom. So with that, let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that you love us so much as to give us this alarm of the epistle of Hebrews to highlight our jeopardy at failing to receive what you have set aside for us. Father, we would pray that through your Holy Spirit and through your word, you would help us to understand what you would have of us in these days. We thank you, Father, for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, that through him we are justified by his shed blood. And yet, Father, we also seek to be a metakoi, a partaker, an overcomer. Help us to understand these things that we need to understand, that we indeed may grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, that we might indeed be more effective stewards of the opportunities that you've brought before us, and that we too might be more pleasing in thy sight. As we commit ourselves into your hands without any reservations, in the name of Yeshua, our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, our coming King. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Hebrews. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.